Well, the letter of James that we're going to start a study now is uh, a difficult letter in a sense to understand. You can read it on the level of a sort of a, a list of kind of homilies of sort of little pithy practical exhortations rather like the book of Proverbs, which it uh, alludes to a lot. And uh, just think that, well, that's it, starts and finishes like that. But I think we will benefit from understanding a bit about the context of it, or the context that I suggest it was written in. And that will enable, I think, the letter to open up to us on a somewhat deeper kind of level. Now, the James that's writing here is the James, the great leader of the early church. Um, That's my... uh, Opinion. I, I give them some reasons for that in my uh, my, my, my book about James. Uh, I'll ask you to just take that as read. And there's a lot of connection between this letter and the Council of Jerusalem and the letter that was written by James after the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Now, what happened with that Council of Jerusalem was that the early church had come to a point of division over the issue of whether Gentiles should be allowed into the church uh, uncircumcised and without fully keeping all the law of Moses. And there was this big uh, contention, and it was apparently resolved by an agreement that, yes, they didn't need to be circumcised, and yes, they could be welcomed into the church, but they were to be uh, sensitive to a few Jewish, um, Jewish Christian sensitivities. Now, I want to just uh, emphasize that point. And there's a number of similarities between little phrases that you read here in James, in the letter of James, and the events of Acts 15 and the letter that James wrote uh, commending the Jewish, uh, commending the Gentile Christians to, to the Jews. Let's start off there, James 1 verse 1. He says, James to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, I understand that to be uh, Jewish Christians of the diaspora, greeting. And you've got a similar thing there in the letter that James writes back in Acts 15. You may like to just uh, keep your finger there in Acts 15. Uh, Acts 15, verse 23, he writes this letter, greeting, same word, greeting, unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles, uh, etc. So then, Greeting, it's uh, the same word there. Then in James 2, verse 5, he says, Listen, my brothers. Hearken, my beloved brethren, the AV says, Listen, my brothers. These are the same words as you've got on the lips of James in Acts 15, verse 13. James stands up and says, Brethren, hearken unto me. uh, Brethren, listen. Same words. And in James 2, verse 7, he talks about how the rich blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called the worthy name of, of Jesus which is called upon them and you got that same idea in Acts 15 verse 17 where James uh, talks about the, the Gentile believers as those upon whom my name is called says the Lord we've got in our chapter here James 1 verse 27 just uh, keep yourselves unspotted, unspotted from the world. Got the same idea there in Acts 15:29. Abstain, abstain. Keep yourselves unspotted from meat offered to idols and blood from things strangled. And there's at least three Greek words which occur only in James and in Acts 15. And I think that that has got to be. Uh, that's got to be significant.
Um, In Acts 15, verse 14, James says that Simon declared how God at the first had visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. You've got uh, those, uh, th- th- that same idea in, uh, in James 1. My, my reference that I got scribbled down here, far too small, is uh, somewhat, uh, somewhat wrong. But the, the idea of the name and being taken out uh, of the world, it, it's the, uh, the same words there. If you go through my, uh, my book on James, you'll see uh, I've got all these listed in some detail there in the, in the first chapter. So then, James has written this letter of Acts 15 to everybody, telling them that they should accept the Gentile Christians. And the whole uh, Christian community was initially largely Jewish, from the converts made and all those thousands baptized uh, soon after the day of Pentecost. And so the Brotherhood was somewhat uh, shell-shocked by a division, by all this argument about should the Gentiles be accepted just as they are? Do they have to keep the law? Do they have to be uh, circumcised? And we might shrug and say, what silly things to get all worked up about. But for them, as we know from Paul's letters, this was a huge issue. These were massive issues, just as I guess they, if they could have seen forward in time to the things that we divide over, might think that what on earth was all that about? Why they have a division about the meaning of a Greek word in, in, in some part of Paul's writings, uh, which they don't understand any of them, what it means anyway. Um, but anyway, these divisions are real from the po- point of view of those who actually live through them. And so he sent one letter, which would have been uh, poured over and every word investigated as to what it really meant about accepting the Gentile Christians without circumcision and without the demand that they keep all the law of Moses. And now there's another letter from him, this one that we've got here. And we might expect him to be kind of uh, expanding on what he said in Acts 15. And in fact, he doesn't do so directly. But what he does do is to emphasize time and again personal spirituality. And this, I think, is a sign of James's maturity, that there, when there's been all this upset about what you might call doctrine, about accepting other brethren, he writes a letter to follow up on that, appealing for personal spirituality. And that is uh, really, I think, important. And you see that, I think, his self-effacingness, his humility, in just not focusing on the actual... Uh, political argument that there'd been, if you like, but on encouraging people to simply be spiritual on a personal level. He saw that that was the real answer to this sense of uh, conflict, interpersonal conflict, which there was now over the Jew and Gentile issue. It wasn't just the Jews not liking uh, the, the Gentile Christians, but it was also a sense of division within the Jewish Christian ranks, that the hardliners said, nope, they've got to be circumcised, they've got to keep God's law, and the liberals like Paul saying, no, they don't have to keep the law at all, that's all bankrupt, it's all dead and gone. Uh, not at all. And there was all this spirit of distrust and, and division, and he answers that in this letter by appealing for personal, very personal, spirituality. 
those. Let's go on to uh, define that or, or exemplify that a little bit more. Um, he starts off by saying, count it all joy when you fall into various temptations, verse 2. And he goes on to talk about these temptations. And then we come to the well-known words from verse 13 to 15, where he says that God himself doesn't tempt anyone with evil, uh, but we're each tempted when we're drawn away of our own lust and enticed, and then lust brings sin, and sin brings death. So there in 13 to 15, he seems to be talking about temptation in the sense that we are more used to that word. Temptation in the sense of an internal process that leads to thoughts, that leads to sin, uh, etc. And yet, first of all, in James 1 verse 2, when he talks about falling into various uh, temptations and the trying of your faith, verse 3, the testing of your faith, we would understand the temptations there in the sense of, of testing. So what is the right uh, way to, to understand this? Is he sort of changing his interpretation of the word uh, tempt or test in 13 to 15? Well, I don't think so. But I think what he's saying is that when you fall into temptation, verse 2, um, in the sense of trial and tribulation, and, and that testing of your faith, verse 3, brings to patience, etc. Um, he's saying that the, the real essence of temptation or trial is the, internal, is the internal temptation to sin which it triggers within you. And so the two uh, uses of the word temptation are associated. Sure, God can test or tempt, in the older English sense of the word, uh, people, like Genesis 22.1, like he did with Abraham, and, and like he does with, with all his children, or like he led Israel to be tested or tempted in the wilderness. He did the same with, uh, with the Lord Jesus in the wilderness temptations. But the actual ultimate process of temptation to sin is internal. As he makes clear from 13 to 15, it is our own lust, it's not uh, anything else. We cannot blame sin on God, nor on any devil or some cosmic uh, Satan being. It is our own essential problem. And so what he's saying is that in all the trials and, and temptations in the sense of disasters, in the sense of uh, testings of your faith that occur, the, the essence of those temptations is spiritual. So whether you are persecuted for your faith and you are in prison because you have said that you are a Christian, or you don't believe in uh, Islam, or you don't, uh, in the first century context, you refuse to give uh, honor to Caesar as God, uh, as your Lord and Master, but instead you say, I have only one Lord and Master, and that's Jesus. Okay, you go to prison and maybe to the lions. Or whether you are tempted, tested in that sense by illness, by personal tragedy, by betrayal, by family breakup, by loss of loved ones or whatever, the essence of all those situations is an internal temptation to evil, to sin. And that process is completely internal. Whatever the external uh, situations are, which God may lead you into, as he did with, uh, with Abraham in, in Genesis 22, uh, the essence of it all is internal.
So, you see, that's the sort of letter James is writing. There they all were caught up about, oh, we don't agree with accepting these Gentile brethren. Oh, yes, you should. If you don't accept the Gentile brethren, you're not really a Christian. You didn't get it about Christianity and all the rest of it. He's trying to appeal to people on a far more personal level. And he he emphasizes here in early early verses of James 1 that in these uh, temptations, in these tests, you therefore should have faith. But what is that faith? He talks about the trial of your faith. Verse 3. The trial of faith in what? Well, I think bearing in mind the, the dual sense of the word temptation as he's using it here as both external situation and the internal um, temptation that arises from our own lusts the faith that is being tested I think ultimately is our faith that God will keep us from falling spiritually, keep us from sinning and so he goes on, let's take another example, verse, uh, verse 9. He's talking about rich and poor. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Now, surely he has here in mind the Lord's parable about taking the lowest seat in the ecclesia, so that when Jesus comes, he who has taken the lowest seat will be asked, come up higher. And yet James here uses the present tense, he is exalted. It's as if he's saying that, in essence, the judgment is going on right now. And then he says in verse 10, The rich is made low, because as the, as the flower of the grass, he will, future tense, pass away. Now just note those tenses, because tenses are significant in Greek. Uh, unlike in Hebrew, where they're more vague, they are very uh, definitive and significant in, in Greek. So he's saying here that the rich is made low right now. This is like told to take the lowest seat at the Day of Judgment. And he will, in the future, uh, pass away. He will die in the end. And so the essence of judgment is going on right now. And these, the, the parable about, you know... The, the, uh, the person who takes the lowest seat at the feast will be asked to come up higher. He's saying that, in essence, that's working out right now. And so we should not think that the books are closed and that when Jesus comes, the books are opened and God kind of has a look at how we got on in our lives and uh, weighs up evidence. The whole purpose of the Day of Judgment is for our benefit. No, not for his, because he knows the end from the beginning. And the essence of judgment is going on right now. That is the point. You got it again in verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. He is being tested, not when he will be you know, tested at the day of judgment or tried. Right now, we receive the crown of uh, life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So each of our temptations, our tests, our trials, depending how we come through them, there is, as it were, another uh, part to the reef made for us in, in heaven. And this is quite a, a common idea that right now we are working out our eternal reward. You got it in uh, Matthew 5. Blessed are you when men shall revile you. Rejoice, be exceeding glad, for great is 
present tense, your reward in heaven. So then, our eternity, the nature of that eternity, is being worked out right now. That's why Revelation 3.11, hold fast that which you have, so that no one takes your crown. So they had got a crown, and it was in heaven, of course, and Jesus is saying, hold on to it, so that nobody takes it away from you, as if you've already got it. Now, in another sense, to Timothy 4.8, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me, which will be given at that day. But my point is that the crown, that is the nature of the reward, if you like, or the nature of who we will eternally be, is being worked out and developed right now. And Jesus comes from heaven with that reward with him, to give every man as his work shall be, which I think implies, it's Revelation 22:12. that implies to me that the reward is according to what every man's work has been. That's not to teach salvation by works, because it's all a penny a day as far as salvation goes, but there are degrees of reward in another sense, five cities, ten cities, one star differs from another in glory. So then, that reward which we will receive, that nature of eternity that we will have, who we will eternally be, is a function of how you and I, day by day, deal with our issues. I think that's the modern way to put it. Um, that if you overcome one particularly painful situation today, and if you fail to overcome another one tomorrow, that is all factored in to your eternity. Like when Paul says, you, he's talking to the uh, Philippians and the Thessalonians, you are our glory and joy in that day. So for Paul, because he's, he's invested so much of himself in other people, in that day, before the Lord Jesus at his coming, he says, when he sees the Thessalonians, the Philippians, going into God's kingdom, as a function, to some degree, of the effort he made for them, well, that is part of his crown. You are our crown of rejoicing, he says. And he says, you are, not you will be, you are. So he had this idea that the crown is being made up, and it's an individual one for each of us, and it factors in all the different circumstances, situations that, that we have each been through and, and go through. And so in that sense, who we are now is fashioning who we will eternally be. It's not that there will be another dimension that suddenly makes who we are today irrelevant. The Bible teaches personal salvation. It means that you and me, with all our individual characteristics, our unique paths in life, and the unique, therefore, character which we have ended up with, that that will eternally be saved. It says in verse 18 of James 1, we have been begotten with the word of truth, so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creations. Well, that is difficult to figure out. It could mean that there's going to be many more creations yet to come, and we are the first fruits like Jesus was the, uh, the first fruits, and we are those that follow after the later harvest. Or it could imply that who we are now, right now, is a first fruit 
of who we shall eternally hereafter be. Because the word of truth has begotten us. The new spiritual person who shall live eternally has been begotten right now. And we are growing, we are forming towards the day of final birth, as it were, at the day of judgment, when, when the Lord comes. And in that sense, I, I think we see the importance of the human spirit. Now, we may not have an immortal soul, or we do not have an immortal soul uh, in, in the way that that's commonly believed in. But our spirit is preserved with God. And what is our spirit? The spirit is the sum, I would say, of our personality and character. And that is with God. It's, if you like, remembered by God. And when Jesus comes again, well, we will be resurrected, uh, given a body, and yet within that body there will be that same spirit of life and personality which we have now. Now this is a, a sober thought because it shows the supreme importance of spiritual mindedness. It shows the supreme importance of personality and, and character. And so he, he says that we should receive, verse 21, with meekness the engrafted or implanted word. That the word of the gospel, and I think that's what the word refers to here, not the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, including the Chronicles genealogies. I'm not saying all that is not the word of God, it, it is. But I think the sense in which he uses the word is, as in verse 18, the word of truth, by which we were begotten. It is the word of the basic gospel the utter truth that we will really live forever and it is that which is turning us into new people and so he concludes by, by saying verse 22 be doers of the word and not hearers only because otherwise if you just hear and don't do 23 you're like a man looking at his natural face in a mirror he looks at himself and straightway forgets who he was but whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, will be blessed. So then, what does all that uh, mean? First of all, on a simple level, verse 22, we are to be doers of the word. What word? I suggested that the word is specifically the word of the gospel. How do you do the gospel? I think it is that the basic implications of the word of the gospel are intended to elicit a character and a life and a personality in practice. And that the gospel, as we know, is so simple. It was taught to Abraham that if you believe, you will live forever in God's kingdom, and you therefore will be blessed, and that blessing involves, therefore, forgiveness of sin, because sin brings death, we've all sinned. How, therefore, are we going to live forever uh, and be eternal inheritors of the earth? Well, you're going to have to have the blessing of forgiveness uh, to get there. <clears throat> and, in fact, in Acts 3, that is exactly how Peter interprets the blessing promised to Abraham. He said, God sent his son to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So then, <clears throat> the, the word of the gospel, if it's done, elicits the character, the personality, the response to grace, which involves, of course, being gracious and graceful to, to others uh, and incidentally the word doer is also translated poet in the sense of a performer of a, a written script now 
we therefore are to respond in practice to that basic word of the gospel that we've all received and he says that if we do not respond if we only hear and don't do we're like someone who looks at himself in a mirror but then loses touch with what he really looks like whereas if you hear the word and you do it by implication you are not unaware of what you look like of your true image and that I think opens up something very profound in terms of self-knowledge and self-examination because self-knowledge is something which is terribly lacking in human beings and arguably I suppose is at the root of so many personality problems and the problems people have in relating to other persons this lack of self-knowledge whereas he, he says here that if you hear the word of the gospel and you do it keep on doing it day by day as a way of life you therefore will not be a forgetful uh, you, you will not forget what your natural face looks like see he says in 25 do not be a forgetful hearer but he says in verse 23 or sorry verse 24 that the person who doesn't do God's word forgets what manner of man he was but if you're not a forgetful hearer you are also by implication not a forgetful person not forgetting of who you really are so getting in touch with yourself which is so crucial um, getting in touch with yourself is enabled and empowered by a life that is spent doing the word of the gospel there's an awful lot of talk out there in the wider religious world about getting in touch with yourself and they, those uh, philosophers that have uh, hit on that have, have hit on the right need getting in touch with yourself but they in my opinion do not have any realistic way of doing it whereas here we're told how to get in touch with yourself how to be able to live life aware of who you really are and that is to do God's word in practice and then you will not be a forgetful hearer you will not be someone who is forgetful of what manner of person they really are so then the life that is lived in serious commitment to the basic principles of the gospel the word of truth that I will live forever by God's grace that I really am in Christ the seed of Abraham and that all that is true of him is now true of me by grace because I'm in him that elicits a way of life which has within it the uh, capability of knowing who you really are and not being out of touch not being forgetful of what manner of person you really are now there's a lot of things in James that are alluded to by Paul and he always seems to put a different slant on them not contradicting them I would say but putting a different slant on them the classic one will be in, in James 2 where you know, James is uh, very on about uh, faith and works and that faith's no good you need works and Paul clearly is alluding to that in his teaching where he says sort of um, works won't save you but faith will but uh, faith has got to come out in practice in some way and uh, 
that's the case, I would say, uh, every few verses in James, Paul is alluding to it. Now, I don't think, I, I don't take the Martin Luther uh, approach or the approach of uh, modern critics who say that the contradictions between what Paul says and what James says are so great that therefore probably James isn't for real, it shouldn't have gotten the canon. That's a far too simplistic uh, approach because Paul is not contradicting. He is giving a different slant and I think is uh, almost alluding to James with, uh, with approval. So I would say that James <clears throat> was one of the earliest uh, letters, if not the earliest letter, that was written to, uh, to the believers. And it's, it sort of served as a, a basic manual of life in Christ in practice. I mean, at this time they were still, it seems, in the synagogue, from chapter 2, verse 2, if somebody comes unto your assembly or into your synagogue with a gold ring, etc. So they were still in the synagogue. And Jesus had basically said, stay in the synagogue, but the time will come when they shall cast you out of the synagogues. So James is writing, I think, in very early days. And uh, Paul, I would say, is uh, basing his letters with a lot of allusion to this document called James, which was already well known. So, when he talks, when James talks here about looking into the perfect law of liberty, Paul puts that another way in 2 Corinthians 3, when he says that we look into um, the mirror that is basically Jesus. And insofar as we keep on looking, which is a theme here, what James says, you've got to keep on looking. Uh, we find ourselves changed from glory unto glory, so that eventually who you see in the mirror is not you, but it's Jesus. So he's taking the idea a bit further. James is saying, you know, you keep on doing the word and not just hearing it, alluding in his turn to Jesus talking about the person who built his house on the sand or on the rock, the one who heard the word of the gospel and did it, as opposed to the one who heard the word of the gospel and didn't do it, but appeared to be building his house um, and had a sensation of progress when actually he had no progress at all, that would be the person who loves hearing the word, who builds up their academic knowledge, who hears, listens to Bible stuff and all the rest of it, but it actually does not bite them personally at all. And they have no real progress. Uh, and, and Paul, as I say in 2 Corinthians 3, takes all this further and says, look, we're really looking into Jesus. He is the word made flesh. And the ministry of the Spirit changes you, so that eventually you see not yourself in that mirror, but Jesus. And there's another allusion, I think, also in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says that we see through a glass, or we look into a mirror, darkly. As if he's saying that, yes, um, yeah, James says you've got to keep on looking into the law of liberty, and you won't forget yourself. But he's saying, well, yes, that, that is true, but you know you only see a very poor image uh, of yourself there. And he goes on, develops the theme, 2 Corinthians 3. But actually, the more you look at Jesus, the more you are focused on him and his personality, the more he becomes you and you become him. Um, and the more you see him reflected in you. So then it's not that there's a contradiction. It's taking these ideas further. And so that is to be our focus. Our focus is to be upon Jesus uh, as a person. And really we should be seriously 
questioning ourselves as to how much time per day we are thinking about him. You know, one can think about all the peripheral things of our religion, our denomination, uh, things to do with our belief, etc. But the essence is how focused are you upon him? Because it is a focus upon him which will fundamentally change us and make us, in the end, as he says, a kind of first fruits of that which we shall hereafter eternally be.